According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 this evening, we'll fix our bearings and then uh, pick up our study from Sunday morning that uh, we started on a week ago. I think uh, however far we get tonight, we'll be sufficient and we'll wrap up this idea of glory and glorification and uh, return back to really the focus of our text. All right, there we go. So Philippians 4, uh, 20 through 23 It's the final paragraph of the book of Philippians, so we're rapidly coming to the close here and getting ready to move on to Colossians, will be our next book study. Ephesians, uh, no, Colossians, then Philemon, then Ephesians, that's the long-term plan, rapture pending, Uh, should the trumpet delay, we're going to follow up Philippians with Colossians, Philemon, and then Ephesians, so give that to the Lord as well as a prayer item. All right, Philippians 4.20, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His blessings upon our time together. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice in Your faithfulness. We thank You for the blessings You continue to manifest in our lives day by day and moment by moment. I thank you, Father, that as your children, we are uh, recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And uh, then beyond that, above and beyond that, Father, come the temporal blessings that you shower upon us again and again and again. So, Father, thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for being so loving and so patient with each one of us. We call upon your faithfulness once again this evening as we study to show ourselves approved we recognize, Father, that we can't uh, do this without you. We need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to teach us. So we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we do return to our Philippian study, though, we want to take a few minutes for some Q&A. Any questions that you may have and different issues there. I think Doug mentioned he had a question tonight and You've got a question? Okay, so we came loaded. That's good. There you go. That's the first one. Wait for Rita to come on in. Um, when the term, I, I, I'm going through the Old Testament, I'm in, where am I now? Second to Kings. Mm-hmm. But it's, you read a lot where they say, and he slept with his fathers, or they sent him. Mm-hmm. Does that indicate that that man is saved? doesn't have to be, uh, but I think in most of the cases, uh, you like talking about the kings of Judah, mm-hmm. and uh, talks about the ones that were righteous and they were good because they followed the example of David, or uh, they were wicked kings and they did not. Really, though, it's, it's an idiom of just physical death, okay. that, uh, that they're buried in the, the place where the, the kings of Judah were buried and so okay, forth. Okay, so it's... Yeah. Well, I wouldn't take it as a statement of salvation. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll come up here and then we'll go over there. So I've been going through the basic doctrinal study 
online mm-hmm. on website. And around tape 36 or class 36, it's talking about praying for the forgiveness on behalf of others. Mm-hmm. It, and specifically, I think it was Solomon for the nation or, but for the nation of Israel. But, um, mm-hmm. At that time, which was like 2005, you were saying, yeah, you can pray on behalf of someone else for forgiveness. That just, I don't, how? Intercessory confession is what you're asking about. In the, right. But if they're not, if they don't want to turn from their sin, then I don't understand how forgiveness can be. Okay, so go for there. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Fundamentally, okay, so we understand confession, how to be back in fellowship. And so on an individual basis, it's pretty easy. First John 1, 9, Proverbs 29. I mean, there's other places for confession. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, okay? But we have examples. And so on a, on a personal basis, we get that. That's straightforward. Now, what about on a collective basis or what happens in a, in a, in a family setting or uh, in a national setting, for example? And so... There are examples of that uh, where uh, if you read the uh, introduction to the book of Job, for example, Job was offering sacrifices and he was interceding for his children, adult children that weren't even in his home anymore, but he was still uh, saying perhaps they have sinned unknowingly, perhaps they have sinned uh, and not even known that they had sinned. So he was confessing on their sake, really interceding for his children, but making confession for sins that they may or may not have done or may have done and not been aware of. And so that's an example of that. I think we've got other examples of that too with Job and Mrs. Job when he said, you're speaking as one of the silly women. And he had an opportunity to be a husband and to, um, you know, to shepherd his wife, to lead his wife, to speak divine viewpoint when she's speaking um, crazy stuff, right? Because she was carnal and, and not speaking divine viewpoint. And, and we all know, of course, in the history of husbands and wives, it always works when the husband says, you're speaking like one of the silly women. Uh, yeah, and anyway, that's just in the Bible, so I thought I'd get it out there. Um, but other things, Daniel confessed the sins of his entire nation in Daniel chapter 9. And that's an intercessory basis by which uh, a prophet of Israel is representing his people and confessing to the Father. So in the handful of places that we've seen it, I think Jesus with his nation, in the places where we see it, there is a spiritual um, responsibility. A father for children, a husband for wife, a a prophet for his nation, uh, we might say a pastor for his flock. Uh, and, and it does, when, when you see those patterns that are there, it, I think it opens up legitimate questions of how do we handle the plurality of the, of the, uh, of the people in 1 John 1, 9. Because it's if we, plural, confess our plural sins, right? And so, yes, that would include I and my sins, and it would include you and your sins, but does it also span if I confess his sins, for example. So, um, and, and I recommend, and, and like I say, even in 2005, it was kind of a tentative study, and I don't think I've developed it much beyond that anyway since 2005. But um, if, if uh, <laughs> it certainly couldn't hurt, right? And because we have the patterns that are there. But if, um, if, uh, if you're, husband or your wife, if your spouse is carnal and you know they're carnal, 
Um, what do you recommend? Do you recommend just telling them you're carnal, or do you just go off and pray and say, Father, my, my spouse is carnal, and I'm, you know, uh, and, and just praying on that regard. It's an intercessory prayer. And the value that it has, uh, and whatever the Father needs to do to spark the repentance, to spark the change of thinking, to, to humble the person, uh, I just find too many examples in the Bible to ignore, which is why I, I continue to, to view it as a concept that may have validity. If that makes sense. It seems like the ones from the Old Testament are, and even Jesus that you brought up are all sort of um, an overseer, in a sense, mm-hmm. to someone. So, I, I don't know. And, and it's a lot of it was Old Testament. I just, it, I don't well, James chapter 5 says, confess your sins to one another. And right. so there is an application there. In, in a church setting, when you call your elders, is, is any among you sick? Let him pray. And call I gotta go elder. back to what we've been talking about about if if um, you know empty empty ritual so mm-hmm. how, if, how I could pray on behalf of someone else if they aren't um, what's what contrite right you know like okay well anyway it just it just is mm-hmm. hard to understand okay but, okay no, thank you for that all right and Cornelius had a question we will go to the far right. My question is about uh, my question is First uh, Corinthians chapter two verse nine or Isaiah sixty four and four. Paul quotes uh, sixty four and Isaiah sixty four and four. Mm-hmm. And my question is, uh, even though Paul quotes it, have is that a messianic messianic prophecy? Or is that something like a crown of righteousness that we all receive, believers receive? when they uh, go to heaven or in the promised land or whatever? Yeah, that, so that's two questions. That's two different contexts because okay. the original uh, use of this, of this verse in Isaiah has its own application and its own uh, context. But then Paul, when he makes use of that, it, it serves to illustrate what he was saying just the verse before. So okay. uh, related to uh, how God operates in ways that we don't, you know, he's way ahead of us. Okay. You know, and so um, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That means God's got a plan and the fallen angels just stepped right into it when they didn't realize that that's what they were doing. They crucified the Christ and didn't realize they were fulfilling God's plan when they did that. And then it goes on to say, just as it is written... So uh, using that Isaiah passage, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man. The fact that God works in ways we never would have dreamed of. We wouldn't have thought about it. We, we couldn't see it coming. We didn't hear about it. And uh, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Well, that would be a part of it, but I think it's bigger than that. It's the plan of God as a, as a larger totality on his plan. The things. Can we get back on the microphone again so I can hear you? I'm still puzzled on it uh, huh? because it says that the things that he has prepared for those that love him. Mm-hmm. So anyone know what the things are? God does because <laughs> he's prepared them, right? Yeah, things yeah. that I, hasn't, I haven't seen it. My ear hasn't heard it. So Daniel haven't prophesied it or anything like that? Or? Right. Okay, then. All right. Right. I got you. 
we won't we won't see it. We'll we'll find out when we get there. Yeah, which I like. All right. Well, thank you for that. And, and uh, if I didn't get to your question, do uh, we have any others? Last call, real quick. Short, easy questions. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Two. Two? Okay, two. I'll go with that. <laughs> All right, well, let's look at Philippians chapter 4 again. Thank you, Chris. As we wrap up the uh, chapter... We wrap up the book. This is the third and final portion of chapter 4. The epistle closes with one of the shortest greetings and doxologies of any Pauline text, verses 20 through 23. And really, we break it down into glory, greetings, and grace. We've got glory in verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And we'll talk about that tonight as we started a week ago and, and continued on Sunday morning. God already is infinitely glorious, so how do we give him any more than he already has? And uh, some ideas there that are a little bit uh, difficult for us to ponder over, but we'll, we'll ponder. And then the greetings in verses 21 and 22, including Caesar's household, that, uh, you know, if Caesar's household says hi, that gets your attention, and we'll uh, discuss that as well. It's really the basis for, for which sparked the whole tradition that uh, this book was written from Rome, and that it was during his Roman imprisonment that that uh, that Paul was writing uh, Philippians and, and Colossians and Philemon. Uh, it's actually not necessary to conclude that because Caesar's household spanned the entire empire, and there were uh, royal residences or imperial residences all over the place, including Ephesus. Ephesus had a uh, uh, Caesar's household there, so. Uh, we can't rule out those locations as, uh, in other words, we don't insist on Rome as an origin for this epistle just based on that verse by itself. So we'll talk about that. And also we'll discuss really the joy and the privilege that if you have the opportunity to give the gospel to somebody that's connected to political power, um, what a chance, you know? Wouldn't that be great if uh, if we knew that our governor had somebody on his staff that was somebody that uh, that you know, you had led to the Lord. And uh, you would think, man, this is great. We've got somebody that's saved and on doctrine and, and positive to the Word of God. And, uh, and there they are on uh, the governor's staff or the mayor's office or the president's office or anything like that. So having uh, members of Caesar's household born again and positive to, uh, to the Word of God, that's an exciting thing to think about. And uh, and uh, here we have it in, uh, in Philippians. So we have uh, uh, glory, we have greetings, and then we have grace. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just be with you, that's kind of how he normally closes his epistles, but be with your spirit. And uh, that's, a, that's a very unusual phrase, and it's one that has sparked no shortage of uh, speculation and opinions and commentaries and discussion. And uh, so we'll, uh, we'll deal with that as we get to verse... 23. We're still though for tonight in the midst of uh, verse 20, talking about his glory, the fact that he bestows glory. I like the way that verse 20 is a nice follow-up to verse 19. And so when we are offering all glory, honor, and praise, saying to God be the glory forever and ever, amen, it's coming in that 20th verse just right after the promise that my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so he is actually making us rich. He's pouring out riches upon us, and he's doing so 
according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so we want to recognize that when the Father bestows his riches and glory, it diminishes neither his riches nor his glory. He's not poor because he made us so rich. Remember, uh, even then we have a description of Jesus in this regard as well. Although he was poor, he made many rich, is the expression there. And all these are useful examples for us as we grow, as we learn, as we emulate, uh, keeping in mind that when we are generous and gracious in giving, that we are the ones that are profiting, uh, as per verse 17 that we dealt with a few weeks back. All right. So uh, when he bestows his riches and glory, it diminishes neither his riches nor his glory. And uh, so this launched us then into a just a short study on glory and glorification. It is marvelous vocabulary. The concepts are, are beautiful to consider. A rich spectrum of Hebrew and Greek expressions. Uh, when you're dealing with the Hebrew, it's mostly about heaviness. It's about the weight. Uh, kavod and kaved are terms that speak about heavy things. And uh, unlike uh, certain uh, segments of our society today, uh, that that uh, <laughs> uh, views uh, thin as attractive and heavy as unattractive or unhealthy or what have you. Uh, in the ancient world, it was the other way around. It was absolutely the other way around. That the heavy people were the important people. That they were the ones that were glorious. They were the ones that were attractive. Heavy women were the attractive women. And uh, and aspects there. When Sarah was brought into Pharaoh's uh, harem there in, in Genesis. She was an attractive woman. Remember how old she was? <laughs> okay, yeah. And so here she is, you know, 60 pushing 70 and, uh, and uh, yeah. And wow, she was uh, the pinnacle of beauty and, and Pharaoh said, um, she, uh, she's mine. <laughs> so that made, of course, Abraham uh, regret his lies and, and the things there. But anyway, so Kaved speaks of heaviness and importance. The Greek terms doxa and doxadzo, these are linked to the verb dakeo, which means to think or to seem. And uh, they are semantically and conceptually linked to thinking, to how does it seem? Does it seem good? Which is eudikeo and eudikia, the idea of good pleasure. So uh, those are the concepts. And as you do these studies, realize that they are interlinked, that a study on God's glory can't be separated from a study on God's good pleasure. They are linked. They're linked semantically in, in, in the semantics of what the words mean, but also they're linked conceptually because God's good pleasure is, is the definition of His sovereignty, of His will. He does what He pleases. And that's, that's, uh, there's nobody more sovereign than God. Nobody can overrule what God wants to do. And so uh, when He declares His will, when He declares His good pleasure, it happens. God accomplishes His good pleasure. So Anyway, we've got studies on eudikeo, uh, eudikia, the vocabulary there, and that dakeo verb is the, the, the core of doxa and doxadzo. So the things that seem worthy, the things that seem valuable, all right? And this is why um, for you and I, we want to be able to train ourselves to estimate things based on God's standard, not the world's standard. We want to praise and magnify the things that God praises and magnifies. We want to esteem, we want, we want to hold things in high regard that God holds in high regard and the opposite. If God holds it in a low regard, we have to match that in our attitude. If we have a different attitude, we, we're, the, we're, the wrong, we're the ones that need the attitude adjustment. 
And so those aspects there become important. An excellent study in glorification was taught at Austin Bible Church in the First Corinthians series. And that's, uh, we've been taking just a short side trip to review some of those. We had some handouts on Sunday. I don't know, did we run out of those? Do you still have yours from Sunday? If you brought it with you. Otherwise, we can make some photocopies and make some more available tonight. Or just look at the screen and you won't really need it anyway. But we did do a study on 1 Corinthians chapter 6 called Bodily Glorification. And it came out of 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, and, or with your body, and then as a dative of instrument or dative of means. That's what we're supposed to do, to glorify God with our body. Okay, And so uh, a week ago we touched on some of these, and then Sunday morning we got a little bit further with it, and uh, we'll see tonight if we can get to the end of this and, and call it good so we can move on to other things on, uh, on Sunday. So if you are looking at the handout and you're looking at this under Roman numeral 1 with the introduction and definition, and then the definition, we actually went to First Chronicles or Psalms and found uh, a biblical definition for what does it mean to glorify God in terms of ascribing to God glory and strength, ascribe to God. And so what does it mean to glorify? That means we are communicating our high regard, that's what it means. We are communicating our high regard in such a way that we're going to influence other people. Other people that maybe don't have the same high regard that we have. We're trying to influence them so that their regard is, is, is elevated. So that they will increase or elevate their regard. So it deals with ascribing to Him. Let me turn off those other... There we go. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. He's entitled to it. <laughs> his name is worthy. His, his being is worthy. And so uh, we want to communicate that. And we do so in our words. We do so in our, in our deeds. And quite honestly, what's the, uh, we have an expression, right? Actions speak louder than words, right? Have you heard that before? All right. In fact, that's good premarital advice. Write that down. Actions speak louder than words. And, uh, you know, you can say, I love you, or uh, do your actions bear that out in, uh, in different ways. All right. And so in ascribing these things, in bringing an offering and coming before him, as it says, so you ascribe, 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 and then it says, bring an offering and come before him. Don't, don't stand before him empty-handed. You know, don't stand before him and assume what, what is he not worthy of our offerings, of our gifts, of our worship. And part of our worship is indeed uh, giving. Worship the Lord in holy array, in the, uh, in the raiment of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. So uh, it's a great definition of, of uh, glorification right there. My definition comes under point C, to glorify means to communicate and or demonstrate by thought, word, and deed, the high regard of worthiness that God's being is due. Just communicate the high regard that you hold God. And because if you don't, you're telling a whole different story. 
you're actually communicating that you're holding God in a low regard and that you're holding yourself in a high regard and that uh, for some you know carnal reason you're magnifying yourself over God in his plan and his word and his priorities uh he's he's laid down his uh his standards of righteousness and you've decided whether uh whether you care or not you know or whether you're going to substitute your own standards for his and uh, in in which case you're glorifying yourself you're showing the whole world that you view yourself as more important than you view the Lord in these ways. All right, so that's what it means to glorify. And, and as I said, it's, it's not like purify or mystify or any of our other fification terms in English. We're not making him more glorious. All right, we're not changing him at all. He's already infinitely glorious. But what we're doing is we're increasing the esteem in the eyes of our fellow uh, human beings related to how they regard him in uh, in that. All right. And I hope that makes sense. When when we realize that there's really a lot of things that we um, learn how to value. We learn how to value later. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things. Just That's just part of growing up, you know. Um, you, you learn how to value... Uh, <laughs> You learn how to value the electric bill when you're paying the electric bill, right? Because when you're a kid, you don't value the electric bill. You're not paying it. But then, you know, God brings you to the point where you learn and you, you learn to appreciate the value of, of an electric bill. And so we can teach ourselves to value things that maybe we never valued before. Again, marriage advice. Because uh, let's face it, Men and women think differently, and you put the two together, the two become one, but wow, they still think differently. So you learn how to value what your spouse values because you love your spouse. And uh, you value for her sake the things that she values. All right. Then uh, as far as the development goes, we then uh, go through a a chain of passages here. And and really the main points, if we just want to scan ABC down through I, all of these are just valid principles for how do we glorify God in our body? How do we glorify God? How do we demonstrate this? And our actions, again, they speak louder than words. Um, as per Romans chapter 6, we've got a choice. We can serve the Lord or we can serve our flesh. We can be in fellowship or out of fellowship. And, um, and it's just a matter of how we're presenting the members of our body. So uh, Romans 6.19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. You notice that? Once you're on that carnal path, it just slides. It's downhill from there and it gets worse. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So that too shows a progression. It's a positive progression. Once you get on the spirituality track, then the longer you stay in fellowship, the longer you keep presenting your members to righteousness, then uh, the ongoing sanctification is the result. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And so this is a fun chapter. This is one that I too I, I like to um, illustrate with uh, swashbucklers, you know, sword movies and stuff. I like, I like it when, uh, you know, when Lancelot drops to a knee and bows his head and King Arthur dubs him and, and he accepts his service, right? 
Okay, never mind what happens later because that's bad. But when a king accepts the service of a knight, that's the picture here. When you present yourselves. And so if you present yourselves to God, that's just like you know the knight who drops to a knee and bows his head and says, I'm yours, Lord. Use me. Okay, And that's what we want to do with the Holy Spirit. We want to be used by the Holy Spirit and not uh, be subject to the flesh. All right, so that's the development under A. In 2 Corinthians 5, we realize that uh, we've got to struggle with this selfishness thing. Uh, back when we were unsaved, of course, and when we're carnal, out of fellowship, uh, selfishness is, is kind of how we operate. But that's not how we're supposed to operate. We're supposed to be living for Jesus Christ because He died for us. And so it says in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live, that's so important, they who live might no longer live for themselves. That's what we used to do when we were unbelievers. That's what every unbeliever does. It's all about self, all right? But once you're saved, there's a new manner of life that's expected that the Bible describes for us. We no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so our whole Christian walk needs to be centered on Jesus Christ. He died, He rose again. If we're walking in the newness of life, that becomes our focus. So uh, really, am I living for myself? Am I living for Christ? By living for Christ, the believer communicates and demonstrates the high regard that Christ is entitled to. If you're living for Christ, the world sees that. And that's going to communicate that you're not living for yourself. You're, com- you're living for Christ. That glorifies Christ. It communicates the high regard that you have for Jesus Christ. And so in this way, the believer glorifies God in his body. If you fail in that regard, if you just decide to, to be selfish and live in carnality all the time, well then, you're not glorifying Christ, you're glorifying yourself. You're communicating the high regard you have for yourself and your own uh, lusts and your own uh, appetites. Remember the phrase in Philippians, whose God is their belly? That's, uh, that's the selfish idolatry there that, that we're looking at. Main point C, making volitional choices by means of faith in direct application of the Word of God. Here's another application. You want to glorify God? Make His Word the standard of your life. Base your life on what the Bible says. Okay, hey, don't, you know, I mean, seriously? What, what other options would we have? You know, and yet the world's got all kinds of things. They're going to follow different authors. They'll follow different radio personalities or television personalities or whatever. They, uh, <laughs> you know, it's scary how many uh, young people are, are just basing their life on pop culture and they're, they're heroes in, in the entertainment industry and, and whatever? Or if, uh, if Oprah says, read this book, they go read this book and uh, whatever was featured here, and this is, that's how they, they're making choices and they're, they're doing things. And just how crazy is that? People are pretty imitative. We, we copy. We're, you designed us to be copycats. You know, that's how children learn from their parents. But really, when you're an adult, you should kind of be past that and stop following pop culture and stop doing all these things. And pastors are guilty of it too. There was um, Chuck Swindoll bought a Harley 
back in the 90s, I guess, years ago now. But And then all these evangelical pastors started buying motorcycles. And then quite a few were getting hospitalized. And uh, yeah, the gift of pastor teacher does not give skill on a, on a motorcycle. Anyway, what are we doing? Are we following these guys? Or are we living the Word of God? We should be living the Word of God. So uh, making choices based on the Word of God, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, um, I remember, you know, my parents saying they don't care. You become a whatever, a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, a ditch digger, whatever you end up doing, as long as you're living in the Word of God. If you're, if you're pursuing God's will for your life and you're growing in the Word of God and, and, uh, and that becomes your priority. Uh, so whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's where you live, uh, that's in your, in your uh, career, in your marriage, in, your, in everything. It's got to be for the glory of God. And so when you make these choices, and Romans 14 goes into all these doubtful things, in the, in the sphere of doubtful things, in the sphere of, of uh, personal preference, you know, there are some believers that wouldn't eat the meat sacrificed to idol because their conscience wasn't good with that. And they, uh, they chose not to. But then there were other believers that had no hang-up with it at all, thought, hey, that's great. And, uh, and so the faith that you have, have as your own conviction. As long as it's not sin, you're free to, to glorify Jesus Christ in whatever you do. So uh, the one who eats meat sacrificed to idols and the one who does not eat meat sacrificed to idols, they can both do so for the glory of God. Now, if you choose to, uh, to consume alcohol in moderation, for example, for the glory of Jesus Christ, then there you go. Or if you choose to be a teetotaler and not drink a drop, uh, again, for the glory of Jesus Christ, because you don't want it, you want to maintain a witness and, or whatever the, the issue might be. All right? Um, in, in personal application, as long as you're not crossing the line into sin, we've got liberty in Christ to do all kinds of things. And that uh, that your conscience is good with. Romans 14.22 says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And so when you're making decisions based upon your faith convictions, that's glorifying to God. Because you're communicating that you're holding his word in that high regard. That the word of God is worthy of our uh, obedience. So any matter that is neither commanded nor prohibited is a matter for Christian liberty, subject to the law of love. 1 Corinthians 10, 31-33. But uh, the volitional choice a believer makes under the law of liberty and the law of love must be made on the basis of faith. It's got to be a faith conviction. You can't go forward doubting. If you doubt, it's a sin. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. See, God doesn't want you just to close your eyes and hope for the best. He wants you to open your eyes and walk by faith and make faith decisions. There's a tremendous confidence that comes in your Christian walk on that basis. So by making faith decisions throughout daily life according to the Word of God, the believer communicates and demonstrates the high regard that God's Word is entitled to. We glorify God, we glorify God the Father, we glorify Jesus Christ, we glorify His Word. We demonstrate the high regard that we have. All right, down to D. 
urging a believer to give glory to God. Now here's an interesting expression because the religious leaders try this and they were as phony as phony as a phony as a charge of Russian collusion. Alright? These you know, I went and got political. These Pharisees were as phony as anything and yet they come and they say oh, give glory to God. Right? As if using religious language is, you know, makes it better. So in John chapter 9 you got the man born blind. And um, it was undeniable, the miracle. This guy was born blind, been blind all his life. The Pharisees knew it, his parents knew it, he knew it, everybody knew it, right? But now he's not blind anymore. And so that's a problem. Okay? That's a problem for the Pharisees because they didn't do it. And Jesus did it and that's, that's a problem. And so their only criticism is that, well, he did it on the Sabbath, right? Anyway, so they're trying to get testimony from this guy. And so they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And this is what happens when you're putting pressure on a witness to try to flip him and turn him as a hostile witness for the real target that you're trying to get to. But this guy's too smart for that. Okay. <laughs> he might have been blind yesterday, but he, he, see, he saw this coming. So, uh, so he just lets it go. Okay. He says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and, and now I see. So there you go. Um, but urging a believer to give glory to God, it equals telling them to do the right thing. In other words, it's, it's a way, it's an idiom to say, obey the Bible, live the word of God, give glory to God. Be obedient to what the Word of God says. And so it's an interesting idiom. Unbelievers and carnal believers can use biblical vocabulary to lower a faithful believer, that's true. But realize the truth always gives glory to God because God is true. And so the lie will always not be glorifying to God. The truth will always be glorifying to God. God is the God of truth. And, uh, and speaking the truth in love is always glorifying to God. I mean, it really does get that simple, right? We're, we're, we're living in, in the midst of an angelic conflict where there's the liar on the one hand, Satan, who said, I will be like the Most High God. He's vowed to be the counterfeit God the Father. And he's just a liar. But then there's God, the God of truth, and his Son, who's the way, the truth, and the life. And so that when it comes right down to truth versus lie, you want to glorify God? Have nothing to do with those lies. That's all, uh, that's all of the adversary. Down to point E. We also talked about Philippians 1.20. Earthly shame or exaltation. Boy, here's a verse. Preach this one for a month of Sundays. There's a lot in this one. He talks about um, maybe being released, maybe not being released, maybe dying in prison, or he didn't know. But he says, uh, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So do you want to exalt Christ? Well, what if that means you die? <laughs> do you still want to exalt Christ? And, and so we've got considerations to make, and also we have to balance, we have to recognize that being put to shame in time is, is not pleasant, but you know who likes that? But it's so much irrelevant when it comes to being put to shame for all eternity. 
that you do not you do not want to hang your head in shame at the judgment seat of Christ when you watch this wood hand stubble go up in, in flames. Uh, so uh, we have a, an emphasis that's made there. Uh, earthly shame or exaltation produces heavenly shame or exaltation for Jesus Christ. Are you going to deny His name or are you going to praise His name? Because there's going to be an eternal consequence for that. If you deny His name, Jesus actually will deny you for the patriological rewards that the Father is going to bestow on those who did not deny His Son. And so, um, you know, if, you, if you're going to compromise here in time for some kind of a, a thing, the price you pay is, is, is eternal, infinite. All right. Anyway, there's a whole lot there in Philippians chapter 1. But it's, it's curious because I think a lot of believers... Um, a lot of humans, let's just say it's a human thing. A lot of their decision making is, is, is grounded in the appearance, in, in well, what are people going to think, right? And oh, I don't want them to think any less of me, or oh, I don't want to be ashamed, or oh, I don't want to be embarrassed. When uh, really that's, that's slavery right there, that's, that's a fearsome way to live because Satan will manipulate that all day long. And uh, once you surrender to that motivation, it's uh, it's that's a that's a tough road after that. So, um, if you if you fear the Lord, then you don't fear man, and and so some earthly shame along the way. Well, you know, it's the price of doing business, right? I mean, Jesus was put to shame, and and um, there you have it. All right. Point F: the believer's day-to-day life and their physical bodies as a living sacrifice glorifying God in their spiritual service and worship. And so many of these, I mean, a little bit of it's redundant, but it's different passages that are saying the same thing in different ways. So we talk about how you make your decisions. Here we're talking about, well, how do you live your life in Romans 12? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So you're not showing up uh, with a goat. You're not showing up with a sheep. You're not showing up um, to, to kill an animal and stand before God. You're showing up as a living sacrifice yourself. You are the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is your life as you live it for the glory of Jesus Christ. So again, Romans 12, 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The sweet-smelling savor, that acceptable to God aroma, when you stand before Him and say, Father, here I am, I'm yours. See, and this is, uh, this is the beautiful thing that we have the privilege to do. And then it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why uh, the Word of God is so vital. If you're not transformed day by day, then world conformity awaits. And that's the default uh, situation. So uh, you can avoid that by uh, being in the Word of God. Okay? I don't know if you think in these terms or not, if... Uh, um, some people I talked to, it's why they started playing Scrabble, because they thought it was a means to hold off uh, Alzheimer's. They can, uh, they can keep their mind sharp, they can hold off dementia, and they can, if they just play Scrabble for 40 years, they'll keep their mind sharp and they'll be, uh, anyway, that's their theory. And, uh, and it sounds good to me, so I'm playing Scrabble now too. But um, we get these ideas, What's gonna, what can we do to keep this from happening? Okay? Well, the Bible tells us right here. He's made provision so that we're not conformed to this world. This world of sin is very conforming um, 
influence. I mean, we're, we're, we're sinners anyway. And so a world that's geared to cater to sinners is going to be, uh, it's, you know, Satan's got a pretty easy time tempting us when we're very temptable anyway as sinners. And we're in a fallen world. And so if you're not transformed by the renewing of your mind, then world conformity is the default. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when you read that, you, can, you have to read that as absolute, as either or. There's no third path, there's no middle road, there's no gray area, it's an absolute black and white. You're conformed to this world or you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And uh, that is the only defense against the other. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So to be that living sacrifice, to demonstrate the will of God, you've got to be growing in the Word of God day by day. That's That's the provision there. So presenting our bodies, these are the subpoints then under F. Presenting our bodies to God for His service is true worship. That's what it says. It's your spiritual service of worship. <laughs> you know, and it should be pretty simple because there it is. And yet you go to the uh, go to the Lifeway Christian bookstore or any Christian bookstore, not picking on one brand that's going out of business. But you go to the Christian bookstore and pick up a book on worship and see what it tells you. You know, because it's not music, it's not raising your hands, it's not feeling holy. It's living your life for the will of God. It's living your life according to His Word. Presenting your bodies to Him as a living and holy sacrifice. That's worship. The Word of God transforms the believer and renews the mind, equipping the believer to demonstrate the will of God. That's Romans 12.2. It's also 2 Timothy 2.15. Present another presentation verse. Present yourself approved to God, workmen needing not to be ashamed. How? Thriving in a music program? No. Rightly dividing the word of truth is what it says. All right. I'm not bashing music tonight. I love music. Gospel quartets, four-part harmony. That's that's marvelous stuff. All right. By learning the word of God and living the work, the believer communicates and demonstrates the high regard that God's work assignments are entitled to the high regard that his work assignments are entitled to. Think about it, because he's called you to do some work. You're saved under good works, prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And you think, hmm, what am I called to do? Am I a pastor? Am I an evangelist? Am I a a helper? Am I a giver? Am I a, uh, I mean, there's 11 spiritual gifts. Let's start with those. Uh, Am I, should I be uh, in a, in an elder care ministry? Should I be in a visitation ministry? What am I called to do? If we're, if we, his work assignments should be held in high regard. If we uh, hold them in low regard and blow them off and act like they, there's no such thing or they don't exist or, or whatever, then we're not glorifying God in our bodies. We're not glorifying God as we're commanded to do. So uh, his work assignments are uh, entitled to, they're due, worthy of, high regard. So in this way the believer glorifies God in his body. The verse that, um, where was that? It was uh, Jeremiah 48, 10. Wes was uh, sharing this with me the other day. Jeremiah 48, 10. Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. Ooh, Yeah. If you're called to be a pastor, don't be a negligent pastor. Don't be a slug. 
You're called to be a, a deacon. You're called to be a Sunday school teacher. You're called whatever it is, okay? And you're claiming the gift of pew sitting. Wait a minute, I didn't see that. There is no gift of pew sitting. There's no ministry of church attendance. You're here to be equipped for the work of service. Cursed be the one who restrains his sword from blood. And some of the work assignments you're given to do may not be pleasant, but if he calls you to do it, you got to do it. You can't show favoritism. Anyway, so thank you for that. Point uh, G. The believer's day-to-day life in their physical bodies is a shining light to this lost and dying world for the glory of God the Father. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One of the easiest ways to glorify your Father, remember this whole study started with to God be the glory both now and forever, right? That God gets the glory forever. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, amen. So do you want, here's one way to glorify God. Let other people watch you bear fruit. Be observed, be on display. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And it's interesting to me how many uh, Christians are like undercover spies or something. They're like, you know, they're saved, but they just don't want other people to know they're saved. Or they're, you know, they're just like James Bond Christianity or something where they just, they're just a secret agent. of. That's a terrible example. He was the most public spy ever. He was always introducing himself. But, you know, throw it out there. Let, you know, let your neighbor know that you're a believer and the Word of God is your priority. And, uh, and, and everyone should know that. You shouldn't be shocked if, uh, you know, if uh, somebody reads your obituary and goes, oh, they were saved? <laughs> Didn't know that. Okay. As a, uh, the believer must be willing to conduct their lives as living witnesses for Jesus Christ. By living as an ambassador for Christ, the believer communicates and demonstrates the high regard that the gospel is entitled to. Do you hold the gospel in high regard? Then why haven't you given it in the last 20 years? Do you hold it in high regard? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So by living as an ambassador for Christ, the believer communicates and demonstrates the high regard that the gospel is entitled to. In this way, the believer glorifies God in his body. Point H. A purpose clause for the church's existence is to proclaim the excellencies of God. I like this in 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that this is not what people usually think about. Most people, I'm just not preaching to you guys, but Christians without biblical teaching, the whole concept of being saved is so I don't have to go to hell when I die. And you know, that's true, and it's great, and I don't want to go to hell when I die. But that's not the purpose for being saved. Really, it's a side effect. I mean, it's a, it's, it just goes with everything else that comes by being a believer, by being saved. And so here's why. So that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. God gets the glory for saving you. It's not to your glory because you were so savable. It's to God's glory because He saved you. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you. And so this is our privilege. We get to do this as as a redeemed people. We get to proclaim those glories. And along with this, in the church age in particular, now believers of all ages could testify to this. Job could testify to this. David could testify to this. Old Testament believers and New Testament believers alike. It doesn't matter. Any stewardship, a believer can testify that to God be the glory that... uh, you know, a sinner has become saved, and that's uh, that's a miracle. But in the church age now, in particular, the dispensation of the church is a stewardship of unveiled face and glory. And um, this was something we went into in Second Corinthians chapter three, verses seven and eight. It is a glorious ministry that we have that we are face to face with Jesus Christ. We're face to face with the Father as we study the Word of God. We are a heavenly people dealing with realities, not shadows. We're not like Moses who used to have a veil over his face. or We're not like uh, having the law written on tablets of stone. We're dealing with the realities and the substance that is Christ. And so I do like the description here in 2 Corinthians 3. If the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? You know, I mean, it's just hard to imagine. Put yourself back in that Exodus generation. Put yourself back in the wilderness, right? And, and you woke up in the morning and you went out and you gathered the manna and you're ready for a new day. And then you're watching Moses go into the tent of meeting. And you're thinking, ooh, okay, that's pretty cool. And then Moses comes out from the tent of meeting. And he's been face to face with the Shekinah glory in that tent of meeting. And he's going to have doctrine. He's going to have Bible information. He's going to be talking to the people. He's got information to convey. That's how they operated. Well, which is why he had to put the veil on. Because the people were getting discouraged watching the glow kind of diminish. I hope that's on DVD. I want, to, I want to see that when we get to heaven. I want to see the deleted scenes or the stuff there. But I mean, imagine he's coming out like when your sunburn starts to fade, right? And it's just the glow is diminishing, it's dropping. And uh, watching that wind down discouraged a lot of people. Moses said, well, that's not any good. So he put a veil on his face so they, so they wouldn't watch the glow dropping. Okay? You know, sometimes pastors just make choices. They're not sure what to do, but they're making, you know, well, a veil might work. Let's just put that on and see if... Anyway. Um, but here's us, Okay? And, and what an honor for Moses to go into that tent and be face to face. Well, you know what? That's us. That's us. We enter within the veil. We stand before God the Father because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we don't have to come out of there and wrap a veil around us because we're all in there together. It's not like we're going to come out of the Holy Holies and talk to some you know, lesser Christians that aren't entitled to that. We're all in the body of Christ in the Holy of Holies standing before the glory of God the Father. 
It is an amazing stewardship of unveiled face and unveiled glory. And so if there's ever been a people in this world that can give the glory to God both now and forever, it's the bride of Christ. We are equipped to give Him the glory today, all day, every day. Don't wait for heaven to do this. We're doing this now. We're doing this now. All right. Then when we wrapped up the study, we wrapped it up with some warnings. The warnings came out of Acts 12, 23. And immediately an angel of the Lord, I've got to back up a verse because this is Herod. So uh, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him and having one over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, began delivering an address to them. And the people began crying out, the voice of a god and not a man. So they're they're just basically praising Herod to the hilt because they want food. And uh, But immediately an angel of the Lord struck him and he, because he did not give God the glory. Okay? Did not give God the glory. Now we are commanded to give God the glory. If we don't, I'm not saying that we're going to be taking our seat on a rostrum and struck dead, but the, the warning still is valid. It is a valid warning. That failure to give God the glory. Think about how many times People started to fall at, at, at somebody's feet and start to worship them and they had to stop and say, oh no, no, don't worship me, I'm a human just like you. Or angels would say, no, 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 don't worship God and, don't, and only worship God. If you fail to give God the glory, failure to give God the glory does prompt divine discipline. If you don't glorify God, if you insist on glorifying yourself, expect to be under the hand of God's discipline. Isaiah 48, 11, another example of that. For my own sake, my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profane and my glory I will not give to another? By the way, this is proof that Jesus is God too. It's another line of argumentation. If you want to prove the deity of Christ, this verse does it. Because God swears He will not give His glory to another. But then He tells Jesus, I will glorify you. Jesus is God. See, you want to use that as a line of argumentation. Ultimately, rebellion against God sets up oneself as a God. There's a pathetic idolatry. The idolatry of me, setting up yourself as a God. And of course, if you are your own God, well then, yeah, you've got to glorify yourself. And that's, that's sad. Peter insisted that all glory be given to God. Barnabas and Paul insisted, an angel in heaven. They got the passages there. Believers committed to glorifying God must never forget the divine protocol. And this is what we'll come back to on Sunday because our text in Philippians actually takes us here. Glorifying the Father through glorifying the Son. Then the number one way you can glorify God the Father? Glorify His Son. Because that's the Father's main plan is to glorify the Son for all eternity. So we'll deal with that. From John 5, John 14, John 17. All right. well anyway, that's a brief review taught it in two and a half classes way back in the day we taught it in nine classes I think so there we have it Father I thank you for tonight, I thank you for your truth I thank you for reminding us what we need to know Father that we might glorify you in, uh, in our daily life, in our ministry pursuits, in our marriages in our families, in our neighborhoods in every, every venue you place us in Father we want you to be glorified 
And so your word is our priority. Your son is our priority. And I pray that we never lose focus on this, that we continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we not fall into the, the terrible trap of conformity to this world. I do thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.